Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We come to the end of our fall sermon series looking at love. The world teaches us one kind of love, but the Bible teaches us love that is more foundational. We need this kind of love to sustain all relationships. You're listening to Love One Another by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the first letter of John, first epistle of John, John chapter 4. It's a little different that's in your bulletin. That's my fault. I'm sorry. Uh, John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. John 4, 7 through 12. And what I would, I'm going to do is I'm going to set that reading up. About a third of my sermon will come before the actual Bible reading. We'll be in the Bible before that. We'll talk about scriptural things, but I want to set up the reading before I actually get to it. And as I think Christy said earlier, this is the last sermon of our One Another series, which has gone on all fall, Uh, next Sunday, Advent starts. So this is the last one. And I've saved one of the most important, if not the most important, One Another for today. And that is love one another. So absolutely central and absolutely important. And it's a call that you find throughout the Bible. And not only is it important, it's absolutely scriptural, especially in the New Testament. You find it throughout the New Testament in all the genres. In the passage I will read in 1 John, you'll hear it three times. Love one another, love one another, love one another. If you were to read the rest of the epistle, there'd be three more times when John calls us to this. If you would go to Peter, 1 Peter, that letter, also three times, love one another, including love one another deeply from the heart because love covers over a multitude of sins. Paul also often calls us to love one another, and sometimes in really remarkable ways, including Romans 13, verse 8, where he says this to us. Let no debt remain outstanding between you, except the debt to love one another. For whoever loves one another fulfills the law. That's an amazing thing to say, right? All the Torah is fulfilled if we love one another well in the way Christ and the way the Holy Spirit suggests. You probably know where Paul got that from Jesus. Jesus said, all the law and the prophets depend on love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And then finally, there's this. 1 Corinthians 13, that Christy Christy read just a little minute ago, that the choir just sang. In that famous passage, which you've all heard at weddings usually, Paul says, if you're going to be good at at just one thing as a Christian, and as you follow Jesus, if if you only manage to master one skill, one practice when you follow Jesus, Let it be love. Because the only things that are eternal in this life are faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Love one another is absolutely at the moral center of the call that the Holy Spirit puts on his people as they live in Jesus Christ. And that's worth remembering because I sometimes hear, and I sometimes hear from Christians that they're sick of all this love talk. 
Love, 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 love. Sounds wishy-washy and mamby-pamby, they say. And I, I understand why people sometimes say that. But it's biblical. Absolutely, centrally biblical. And not wishy-washy at all when we start to study it, which we will. Of course, we Christians are not the only ones trying to figure out love. If you look around and listen, even for five minutes, the whole world's trying to figure it out. They're writing songs, they're writing books. Everyone's trying to love each other well, and a lot of us are not succeeding because it's really, really hard. And people are spending lots of money and lots of time and still somehow managing to fail in love. And here's a really good, interesting example of that. Back in 2014, some economists at Emory University did a study, and they interviewed 3,000 couples, 3,000 married couples, or used to be married couples, some of them, and what they found is that the more expensive the wedding, the more money you spend on the wedding, the more likely divorce is down the road. The more money you spend on the ring and the wedding, the greater the statistical possibility, probability of divorce. Here is the actual data. Couples who spend $20,000 or more on their wedding ceremony are 46% more likely to get divorced. Couples who spend between 10 and 20,000 on their wedding ceremony are 29% higher than average to get divorced. Couples who only spend between one and 5,000 are 19% more likely to stay together. And if you spend $1,000 or less on your wedding, you are statistically 53% more likely to stay together. Brides who spent more than $20,000 on their wedding were 3.5 times more likely to get a divorce than brides who spent less than $10,000. Now, the smarty pantses among you, and you are legion, a lot of smart people here, you will say correctly that correlation does not equal causation. Just because you've made a correlation doesn't mean that one caused the other. You are right about that, that is true, but still, something is going on here. And I want to be careful because some of you have paid for very expensive weddings. And I'm not saying that a, an expensive wedding necessarily leads uh, to a bad marriage. I mean, that's clearly not true. But I do think something's going on here about the valuations of love and what we understand love to be. So what I want to start off with is, we've just had a little glimpse of what the wedding industry defines as love. How does that compare with what John holds up in his letter? Let's listen. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. This is love. Not that we love God, 
but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of the Lord. So you have a really interesting contrast there, I think. On the one hand, what is the, the picture of love held up by the wedding industry? The ultimate picture of love. Maybe a young couple, newly married, bouncing down the steps of their picturesque church that they paid for for the, the service. And all their friends are lining the road as they make their way out to the vintage convertible where they're going to get in the back seat and be taken off to the reception, and everyone's cheering, and the bride has got her bouquet raised high, and her friends are smiling, and the sun is shining, and they're throwing rose petals in the air, and they're swirling about in the sunlight. It's a lovely picture, and the wedding industry says, that's love. It doesn't get any better than that. And then John comes, and John holds up an entirely different picture. A man on a cross, crying out in pain as he sacrifices himself for the sins of the world. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his only son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Such different pictures, right? So utterly different. How confusing is this that we have these two places where we're hearing totally different versions of what love is? Is it any wonder that young people in our society sometimes get confused about love and how to love and how to do love when you have such utterly different pictures? What is going on here? How do we make sense of this? Well, to make sense of it, it helps to go back to the Greek. The Greeks, as I think many of you know, had more, well, they had more than two, but at least two main words that they use for love. When John talks about love, he uses the Greek word agape. Agape one another. That's what John uses throughout this passage. In fact, if you were to go back and look at the Greek in every one of those passages that I quoted earlier about love in the New Testament, in every single one of them, that's the only word used. Some version verb, noun of the word agape. Agape every time. And that's noticeable because there's another perfectly good word for love that the New Testament doesn't use in any of those passages, and that's eros. Eros and agape, what's the difference between these two loves? Eros, a good love, is a love that responds to beauty, excellence, and goodness. Here's the definition. Eros sees beauty and goodness and responds with an offering of beauty and goodness. And here's a picture. A young man, just out of college, got his job, living in an apartment, and just down the hallway in a different apartment is this girl that he's met, and he thinks she is amazing. They've talked a few times in the common room, and she's smart, and she's beautiful, and he is smitten. And so he gets up his courage, and he asks her out on a date, and she says yes. And so he makes ready for this date. He buys a new shirt. And he chooses just the right restaurant that she will like. And he makes himself nice. And when he comes to her door to knock on it to ask her out, he's got flowers. But not roses. That's too much. Daisies. 
just something nice and bright for the front room. That's a picture of Eros. The young man recognizes goodness and beauty and he responds with an offering of goodness and beauty. That's Eros. Agape is different. Eros responds to goodness and beauty. Agape sees weakness and need and responds with an offering of self-sacrifice. Picture of agape would be a young couple comes to church, newly married. They sit in the same pew every Sunday because that's what everybody does. And just down the pew from them is a, is a widow who they've sort of got to know because she's always there. And, and they go out of church, they talk, and they've learned her name. They don't know her well. She's an acquaintance. But then one Sunday, she's not in church. And then the next Sunday, she's not in church. And then for a third Sunday, she's not in church. And so they say, we gotta, what's going on? They look up her name in the directory, and they call her, and they find out that she hurt her knee, and the doctor doesn't want her to drive. So she's live streaming, but she'd love to be there. And they say, well, it's a little out of our way. We'll come and pick you up and bring you to church. And they do. For six weeks straight, they sit together and sing together. And then they have coffee together afterwards. And by the time this is done, they're not just acquaintances. They're friends. That's a picture of agape. Sees weakness and need and responds with an offering of sacrifice. Eros sees goodness and beauty, responds with an offering of goodness and beauty. Agape sees weakness and need and responds with an offering of sacrifice. Now go back to those two pictures. Now you begin to understand why they're so different. The wedding industry holds up. Eros is the ultimate love. Those two people bouncing down the steps with the flowers flying, that, that's the best thing. And that's, that's eros, right? The goodness and beauty of this, this young couple getting married and the offering of the, the flowers, that's, that's eros. Paul, uh, John says, you know, that, that's, that's really nice. That's beautiful. But here's the ultimate picture. Jesus on the cross. And Jesus on the cross is pure agape. Jesus did not come to this world to be with you because you are so good and beautiful. Jesus came to this world to be with us because we were a mess. Because he saw our weakness and need. Because he saw that sin and death were tearing us apart from each other and inside. And so he came to this world and walked with us and laid himself out on a cross in an act of sacrifice for that weakness and need so strong that it did not just save us, but save the entire world. Pure, world-changing agape. Both eros and agape are good loves. I want to be clear about that. Eros is not bad. It's not bad to have a nice wedding. Eros was created by God, but agape is better. Agape is foundational. Agape, every relationship, it's not just romance, every single human loving relationship must have agape at its foundation. Friendships, church memberships, healthy families, agape, that need, love, that love that responds to need is at the center. Eros, if you're building the house of love, Eros is like decorative trim. 
right? Crown molding in the living room, nice granite countertop, that nice light fixture above the dining room table, that's eros. Agape are the roof trusses, the floor joists, the concrete foundation that goes down below the frost line and does not move when the storms come and the cold heaves. Eros is nice. It's important, right? If you're building a house, you want some decoration. You don't want to build a house that's just four walls and an empty room. Of course you want to decorate. Eros is good. But you don't want to make a you don't make your foundation out of decorative trim. And if you try to, your house will not stand. There are lots of people in this world who try to build the house of their relationships on the decorative trim. Eros is often idolized in our world. Eros is lifted high, high, high. I have a strong suspicion, and again, this is a guess, I don't have data, that the reason so many of those super expensive weddings fail is because they're based on Eros. Not every expensive wedding is based on Eros, but if you're a person who just idolizes goodness and beauty, you will spend a ton of money on your wedding celebration. Agape is the foundation. And as I was thinking about it this week, I, I thought of two things, two practical things. First, I thought if, if agape really is the true foundation of, of our moral life, as, as the New Testament suggests, maybe it's a way we can measure our days. Just sort of evaluate how we're doing. So you come to the end of your day, maybe a thing that we could do is simply look back on your day and say, where today did I practice agape? Is there any point in my day today where I saw weakness and need and moved towards that with an act of sacrificial love? The end of your week, did I do anything this week where I saw weakness and need and moved towards that with sacrificial love? Now, for some of you, if, if you're a parent of a young child, this is the easiest question in the world to ask because your life is pure agape all the time. All you do is response to weakness and need. But if you're an empty nester like me, maybe. If you look back over your week and you don't, can't see any place where you did agape, I'm, just I'm not trying to condemn you, but I'm just saying you will not feel fulfilled. You will not feel a deep sense of meaning because you will not be living inside of the foundational purposes of God. I'm also thinking about our children. We spend a lot of time and a lot of effort teaching our children skills, right? Kids get taught skills all day long. We send them to school, reading, writing, arithmetic. We teach them those skills when they get home, homework. We get our kids involved in music, we get our kids involved in sports, and then we get them home and we make them practice those things and we say it's really important that you drill those things. All those skills we try to drill into our kids. But if it's really true, as Paul says and as the New Testament says, that the most important thing, the most excellent way, is this habit of agape. If the most important thing for our children is that they be able to recognize weakness and need and move towards it with sacrifice, where are we intentionally teaching our children that rhythm? Where in our lives are they learning that habit so it becomes a holy instinct within them? We won't have to teach them eros, right? The society will teach them that. 
uh, decorating magazines, fashion magazines, everything they see on TV. Eros will be lifted high. Where are we intentionally teaching them the habits of agape? It's an important question for all of us. Why is this love foundational? I save this for last. Why is this the greatest gift, the most excellent way? John tells us plainly, it's because God is love. It's not just that God sort of admires love. It's not like love, agape love, is some sort of principle outside of God, some sort of principle that he endorses in theory. God is love. If you were to lower yourself or raise yourself into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and find yourself in the middle of God himself, what you would feel is the abundance of love. And that's why John also says this remarkable thing, that anyone who loves knows God. To love this way is to grow in your knowledge of God. We often think, how do you grow in your knowledge of God? Well, you, you read your Bible, you learn Bible stories, you study theology. It's a way to, to grow in your knowledge of God. That's true. But here's another thing, a completely different way. If you practice in your life the habit of recognizing weakness and need and moving towards it with sacrifice, that practice helps you to grow in the love of God. In doing those things, you will know God's way better because that is who God is. And then the additional and most amazing promise that when you do those things, God lives in you and his love is made complete in you. It's not just the power of your kindness that is working when you do these acts of agape. It is the power of Jesus. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the power of the cross working in you and accomplishing his purposes. And so we come to the end of our sermon series. And once again, we find ourselves at the cross. Have you noticed how many of these, these practices, these virtues that we studied, when we talk about them, where do we end up? We end up at the cross. Why is that? Because that's where they all start. That's where the power comes from. Jesus dying on the cross is why we are one another. It's, it's our reason for being, and it's the power. This is love. Not that we love God. It's not us doing it. It's that God loved us. It's all surpassing powers from God and not from us. In many of these sermons, I've said to you, you can do this. And we've talked about the practice, and I said, you guys can do this. And I believe that, but my hope for that is not based on the fact that you guys are so amazing, even though you are. My hope for that is based on the fact that Jesus is amazing, and that Jesus is strong, and that on the cross, he proved that there is nothing he will not do to save you and to save us. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We, we stand again at the foot of your cross, Lord. Here we are again. And we're here because we know that we are weak and you are strong. And we need to be reminded again that your strength is in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Here we are. Fill us again, Lord Jesus. Send us out into this world. Let your love live in us so that um, even though you're an invisible God, people will look at us and see you.
Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.